The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Beth Ann Hardison and Frederick Chang, the directors of Invisible Beauty. Invisible Beauty had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Frederick Chang is best known for three really wonderful documentaries about the world of fashion, Dior and I, Halston, and Diana Vreeland, The Eye Has to Travel. For Beth Ann Hardison, whose story is at the heart of Invisible Beauty, this is her directorial debut. The film is about Beth Ann's life, her career in fashion, and her attempts to make the fashion industry more inclusive and diverse. It's an ongoing struggle, and it's really interesting in the film to watch how Beth Ann goes about forging alliances, figuring out the right platforms to put pressure on the fashion industry, and how it takes a great deal of courage, wit, ingenuity, personality, perseverance, so many different aspects in order to get results. And believe me, Beth Ann is somebody who gets results. I really enjoy talking to the two directors because so much of what you see on screen is about their dynamic. And so to have the opportunity to talk to them both was a great opportunity to see that dynamic continue to play out. The film opens theatrically in New York City on September 15th and in Los Angeles and more cities on September 22nd. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Beth Ann Hardison and Frederick Chang, the directors of Invisible Beauty. Beth Ann Hardison and Frederick Chang, welcome to Top Talk. Thank you. So much. I like that you finished each other's sentence. Let me jump in by saying this is a film that is largely centered in the fashion world. And of course, it's focused largely on a fashion revolutionary, you yourself, Beth Ann, but it's certainly about a lot of other things as well. But I do want to start by honing in on this word this word, fashion. What is fashion? Yeah, you're really talking to the wrong person about this, although I'm the right person. Fashion is really something where manufacturers are making garments for society. It's a garment district is what I, and so that you could just have manufacturers making just regular nice clothes with no specific label, which means no designer label, no luxury designer label. But in general, it's just a commodity of Clothing being made by designers for a population. That's basically what fashion is because that's what it's become. Didn't used to be like that. It used to be fashion was way over there. It was on another world. It was across the sea. But now everybody's in fashion. If they, if they saw a button on a shirt, they say they're in fashion. Everybody clings tight to that because it's supposed to be, for them, it's a ride, but takes some places. How about for you, Frederick? How would you define fashion? 
fashion is many things. For me, it's mostly the humans of fashion. That's what I'm interested in. And the human stories in fashion, that's what I gravitate towards. And when you first said, what is fashion? I, I remembered something that Bethan said to me and that we had early on in the film when it was like seven hours long, <laughs> when Bethan used to go to a church in her neighborhood in Brooklyn. And she described how she saw the nuns coming down the aisle in their habit. And just the way she described it, I can't really do it justice. But she said that was fashion. Just the sound, the sight yeah. of them, all of that. Yeah. That was when I was young and foolish. Yeah, that was true. And that really, because that was like that. It's like a fashion show. The way the habits are constructed how it's lower in the back, higher in the front, that classic Cuban heels shoe. It's a detail. It's subtle. It's the nun's habits was really quite dry. So yes, that's interesting. But then that comes right back to style to me. Style is completely different to me. Well, speaking to that point, there is an interview clip with you early on in the film where you describe yourself and your friends at a young age as being, we were just fashion girls, you say. Okay. And you clearly do have a great sense of style, you and your friends. What did you mean by that statement? And how does one know if one is a fashion girl or not? Just to remind people that we don't have to conform to what already is out there. If you come from certain backgrounds, and certain neighborhoods, you have style. For that person looking, that's fashion. So that's what I meant by that. It's just that we have style. We're already fashion girls, if you want to call us that. We walk in the street. People can say, oh, that's fashion, that's fashion. Oh, I love the way they do. It's true. Culturally, people call in my neighborhoods. They all had style to me. So the men, the women, they, they all had something. Let's talk about this directorial partnership. In the quote-unquote normal world of documentary filmmaking, I would say Bethann would be considered, quote, the subject, and Frederick the, quote, director. But not in this case. You're both directors of the film. How did both of you come to embrace the fact that the film was going to have two directors? Because he wouldn't do the film if I didn't say yes. It was really like, it was not saying I did this, but that's what some people do. They trick you. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically, no, he concluded that he was going to do the story. He wanted to tell my story. But he said, but the only way I would do it is if you agree to come on as a co-director. He just didn't feel it was fair. Someone who's alive and well, it's still moving around and doing so much. He didn't want to be totally responsible for this human that was really quite capable of doing it as well. So he wanted me to be equally responsible to it. And then the communication would be different. He wanted to try something different too, because as a filmmaker, it's a lonely road until you're sitting in a room with an editor. He just basically felt, you know, innately it sort of like worked out. I did want to try something different. And I knew that there was one person I could try it with and be safe and grow. And that was Bethann because she'd been a mentor to so many people and she knows how to have a conversation that not many people know how to have a conversation like Bethann does. She really listens to the other person. And so it was wonderful. Like we did end up really talking a lot, which is very different from any other film that I've made where, you know, you do your film on your side and then you come back like six months later and then you show it and you hope you cross your finger that they're not going to destroy the film. <laughs> This was a very different process. This was like being on the phone with Bethan all the time and discussing every decision together. And so we were partners. That totally changes the dynamic. You have to make sure your partner is like trustworthy. And I knew that Bethan would 
lift me up and take me to a place that I've never been before. Following up with you, Frederick, for a second, you've made some terrific documentaries about fashion icons. Diana Vreeland, The Eye Has to Travel, Dior and I, Halston. Those are three brilliant films about fashion. What did you take from making those films and apply to this one? And what did you have to throw away? I took a lot from each film. In a sense, each film prepared me to this new one because, you know, Joe and I was very much grounded in what we call verite, you know, like observational documentary. And it was all about the present moment and capturing it. Halston and Diana Vrieden, to a certain extent too, very much uh, archival films. You work with the legacy of a person. The person is no longer there. For the first time, I had to combine these two. And that was actually very hard to do with our editors. We really spent a lot of time just weaving together all these different layers of the film. The present moment is just as important as what Beth Ann has done in the past. And it's just as important as the chorus of voices talking about Beth Ann's impact. It took a long time to find the right balance between all of these. One of the narrative spines of the film is that you, Beth Ann, are writing your autobiography. I'm not sure you ever call it an autobiography, but we see you going through this writing process throughout the film. How did the writing of the book and the making of this biographical and autobiographical film kind of complement each other and maybe complicate each other creatively? The other way that complicated it is that it came around the same time. But the book is so different than, than the film. And the good news is that I didn't put the book out first, that people see that we're trying, to, I'm trying to make a writer book and they get an opportunity to want to see this book completed because they want to read it. But it basically is not the same. So it didn't, it's still yin and yang with it. It made me realize things about myself. I learned things as you write, you get to remember things. Oh yeah, in hindsight, you think of it differently. So the book is coming out in the future? Yeah, that's what they tell me. If I finish it off, I'll finish it off. I'll finish it. They want me to at least have to finish the rest of it because they have time for the book. They want me to have the rest of it to them by the end of the year. They're planning to try and see if they can get it out by the end of 2024. And Frederick, did she ever show you any of the pages or it really was totally separate? I asked for the pages and after many requests, Bethan did share some pages with me. And I was blown away. I can't wait for people to read what I've read and the rest because I only read like a little portion of it. But it helped me understand a lot of things. And really, it made me confident that Beth Ann definitely has a voice. She's a writer. She's a writer. Well, that's so, so nice to she, hear. So Beth Ann, let's go back to your childhood for a moment. You grew up in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. Yes. And being so close to the epicenter of the fashion world in Manhattan certainly provided a window into that world, but it's still a hell of a long journey to go from Bed-Stuy to the runway. How in your mind did you bridge that gap? There's no big thing. I left Bed-Stuy and I looked at the New York Times. You could always find a job at the New York Times. I like basically just looked and I saw something in the garment district on West 40th Street. I just went and worked in a um, custom button factory. And I went on to low-end dresses and from low-end dresses to junior dresses. It was just going in the garment business. It's not about fashion. It's just about going into the garment business, getting a job, learning as much as you can, and people helping you because they believed in me and they just gave me great opportunities. And I know there's this is covered in the film where one of 
your first mentors. He invites you into the world of modeling. Was that a huge transition for you? Well, nothing was huge because I had I kept a full-time job the whole time I modeled. Nothing was huge. It was just, okay, you want me to do that? And then I went and talked to my bosses, the two Jewish women I worked for, and they were so excited about it. They were more excited than I was. And they said, no, he's so good. Oh, you should do it, do it. So all I had to do was just sometimes he would have personal appearances and go with him, or sometimes he wanted me to come to the showroom and try things on. Sometimes I would fit things for him like that. So it was very easy in that way because it wasn't all that it is now, the fashion industry. It wasn't all that cracked up like it is now. It was much more the garment business, racks, people, just real. So it wasn't like very difficult to get into or even something that really wasn't even a possibility. It was no yin and yang. It was no complete difference. You leave your neighborhood, you go home, you get on the train, you go to a job. And the only thing is that my boss, the first guy, the first company I worked for, he just thought I dressed too well to be there and he wanted to hire me. So I said, I can turn it down. I can turn it down. So of course he still thought I dressed too well. He gave me a great opportunity. He would send me with the custom buttons to the actual designers because he thought I should be out of the factory more because I'd make a nice presentation. Later in the film, when you're in a show, I believe in France, you come out on the runway and you face some really harsh racism, in-your-face racism. What kept you from just saying, the hell with this? This is not worth it. This is not a world for me. What was triggered in you that made you want to show them and continue on doing what you were doing? I want to go back when you say I face some extreme racism. Are you talking about when in the film I mentioned about walking into these rooms and the people couldn't look at me and all that? Yes. Yeah. I never thought it was racism. I wasn't sure what it was. I thought more that it just, it just didn't like me because I knew that there were girls of color that serviced those designers. I just didn't look like those girls. I was like that next wave. I was the edgy kind of model. And I was the beginning of something that was changing. So I just thought they didn't like the way I looked. I didn't necessarily think it was because I was black. Yes, I thought they were Southern buyers. A lot of them were. But I thought it was because I knew there were girls of color that worked. But they were much more sophisticated looking. And I was much more edgy looking, tomboyish looking. Yeah. That was hard because I was nervous. He was a big designer. He was really important. And it, I was just uncomfortable because I could see that they were no longer even paying me attention. They started talking. I thought, whoa, how am I going to go back out there? I had to show them the next outfit. So I went back out with the support of Chester. But I'm sure you also did face situations where racism was overt and you I would imagine, internalized it or had a reaction to it. What were some of the sort of internal things that you went through to cope or to decide how you were going to face it? I really want to help you out on this, but <laughs> if you're in Paris, you're going to face a little, you're going to face racism. In Paris, yeah, but they're just the dumb Parisians. That's what I used to say. You know, we get right by because I lived in Paris with a lot of French kids and we all had a great time and stuff. You just get that nonsense sometimes. I didn't live it like you would like me to relay. I don't have that. If I ever had it, obviously it wasn't a great effect because I can't even recall it. Surely yeah. there is, but never, not enough because who I worked for wanted me badly. So I would leave New York, go to Paris, do that, Italy, Roberto Di Camerino. All the people I ever worked for, they wanted me. And it was mixed. So we did a great job that way. But I didn't have anything where I was sitting there like little people rejecting me because 
they rejected me, I took it on because they just didn't like me. Yeah, I guess what I was wondering is trying to make the connection between your later activism, in which clearly you are fighting against racism in the fashion industry, and your early days as a model, and just trying to make sense of how those two points came together. One thing had nothing to do with the other, really. It's just that sometimes people are called to earth to do things. And mm. for me, yeah. it was just that I had to witness things that were happening. And I had a great relationship with the industry. People respected me a great deal. And I knew I could approach them and say things to them that most people wouldn't be able to say. But I always said it with such thoughtfulness. I never said anything that was like an accusation. I always said things like, look at it this way. It was always an education. Look at it this way. And people would say, yeah, but Bethany, I use you. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not racist. I said, no, I'm not saying you are, but look how it could look. I played the high road more so than the low. And I really always wind up having a great results because of it. So when it got even more past the 80s into the 90s, yeah, okay, now the industry's changing this direction. We're going to have to do something about this. But I think that was a time I had to really build up some strength because I knew it was going to take more. And the 90s was that because everything had changed around the world. Industry, our fashion industry was changing. Our model industry was changing. And scouts were going into Eastern Europe and bringing models over. Those girls were perfect for body alignment. They were narrow-hipped. And once they got discovered, there were designers that just wanted to only use that kind of girl. She wasn't attractive per se, but she was just basically someone who just, you didn't notice her. They wanted just to notice the clothes. And that's what wind up happening. They weren't even hiring people like Linda Vangelisa. She's a white girl. They wouldn't have hired her because they wanted something that was no longer supermodel. They didn't want anything that was anything you would notice as much. And so that became something that you had to live with for some years because it was working for them. Frederick, as you were making your earlier documentaries about Christian Dior and Deanna Vreeland and, um, and Halston, were you aware of this force of nature known as Beth Ann Hardison? No, actually, I was not until we met in 2014. Yeah, when I was making Joe and I, I was not aware. It was just when I finished that film and I was presenting it at Tribeca that someone came to me and asked me to direct a short film about Beth Ann. And I took it on because I met Beth Ann and I was immediately taken and I just recognized like the brilliant mind. So I spent a lot of time interviewing her for that short piece. But it's interesting. I was not aware, even though I was an outsider looking in at fashion, I'm one foot in, but I didn't know about the press conferences that Bethan had done. I didn't know but, about the letter. Nobody would have known about that. You had to have been on the ground. Right. Or the letters you had sent. Um, you had, you, nobody would know about that. You had to have been on the ground. So a lot of people don't know that history. Like I didn't know that. To go back to your earlier question, I think it's so interesting that you asked those questions. That was one of the big discoveries also for me is that Bethan's activism doesn't come from a place of, oh, I didn't see myself in the magazine. So I suffered from not having a model to look up to. Bethan never really talked like that. And that I thought that was really interesting to go into it in the film. And that she talks about that in the film, but always feeling confident about who she was. And I think that made the activism and the conversations she started, she was the person to do it because she had the right background and the right kind of confidence. Yeah, I didn't do it. It wasn't doing it because, oh, I've seen how they've done that. And I become the angry one. That's true. It's a good point. 
it was never coming from me. I was just watching things. That's a wow. Because I was, I worked for Calvin Klein and Don and Karen and, and, and Perry Ellis. I worked for all those guys. But when you started seeing it change and the industry started changing, I had a model agency by then and I had white kids and I had some Latin, some black, some Asian. So I had the main product that I could always get the information about because I, I'm selling that same product that my white counterpart is. So I know exactly what people are making, what they're doing. Yeah, it was quite different. I wanted to ask you about those years when you owned your own modeling agency called Beth Ann Management. Why did you want to do that? And was it what you expected? Good question. No, I did not want to do that. They made me do it. Other people outside of me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And I wind up doing it. And I honestly glad I did. Stayed it longer than I thought. I told them, let me get out of this in three years. They said, make it five and you can go. But I wind up seven, nine, 11. By year 13, I knew it was time to book. So it wasn't really something that I liked doing, but I was good at it and enjoyed it. And I had success at it. Everyone loved our agency. And we were the sort of like new boutique agency that was out there was doing things differently. I had my model, had a major motion picture. I had Tani Welch, Raquel Welch's daughter. She was doing film and I just did it the way I wanted to do it. No one had done it like that before because I was always interested in movies and film and music. So it also is, I think, the first glimpse we have into you as a mentor. Yes, you're the boss, but you also clearly care about the people working for you, with you. It's about personal relationships. Yeah, I think it's important when you're representing the talent, at least for me. I wanted them to know that they weren't working for me because it gets confusing in our industry how talent is treated. And I needed to make sure they felt equal to me, felt equal to the staff, to the bookers, felt like they could question the accounting. They must feel that they could question them. The only way I could get through having a model agency is feeling I had a freedom to be able to educate and help others do something that would put them ahead of the game. Because being a model was not, I could care less but I did have great models. I knew in order for me to be able to swallow it, I had to make sure I did it with a certain amount of grace, but at the same time, make them really learn a lot. The models I represented, I never did that. I never was a print model. I was someone who basically did runway shows and we serviced the industry of designers. Those kids that I represented, that business had changed and that was all editorial. It was a different game. So they weren't just runway girls. That whole division of the industry and the model industry changed. Calvin Klein, when he stopped using the fashion model on the runway, everybody followed it. So those girls all disappeared. So I would say about midway through the film, we do begin to spend more time in this world of activism and trying to make change. You described how the 90s was a key period in terms of the industry. And I think it's partly what spurred you on. And there were different periods where this was the case. But one of the things that I couldn't help but notice is that it's not just about your activism. It's about your philosophy, your approach, your strategy around activism and the nature of change. What is your approach to making change? I think in this particular case, it was just gathering people, making a point, gathering enough people that you basically have a following of sort. And it's an integrated audience of people and just bringing things to light that would make anyone, as liberal as they were, recognize that this was not the way to go. There's something wrong here. And because of my background, because I'm not like 12 or 14 years old, I had enough information 
A lot of people in this industry is brand new to it. But I come out of the garment district. I come out of the places where you see people who were like the Calvin Kleins or Ralph Lawrence. We all come out of that same neighborhood. When you start talking to people who really basically taking on another point of view, you just try to show them that they are going down a road that is not going to be very good for everybody. <laughs> and because we had already been there before, it's like they got rid of what was already built. And that's where it was important. And we had good people like Franco Zazani, who was the Italian Vogue editor. She was so amazing. And she was so about fighting the good fight, and making sure this was something that was important. So she did the all black issue with Stephen Mycel. And that was next level. It's so oversold and everything. So you had a lot of people, if you leave properly, you'll be a lot of people who basically are looking for that, just that, because they could see it. And it's easier for someone that has the confidence to lead than everybody running around trying to figure out what they're doing. And that gives you that like support because they feel confident by the way you speak, confident about what you're saying. But I leaned on a lot of people. I had to lean. Because, you know, it was a big thing that I was about to do and had been doing. For you, Frederick, when you started to look at that footage, for instance, of the town hall meetings in 2007, what struck you about Beth Ann's approach and the reaction she got? So interesting to hear Beth Ann talk about her approach and like being a leader and leading, helping people to they're like, oh, they're eager to actually find someone to lead them because there was a problem. I've never heard Bethan talk about it in those terms, but I think it's so profound. We need to re-edit the film and put it in. <laughs> <laughs> you always say, that's why I'm talking to you. I need to mic you. I need to mic you. <laughs> <laughs> so those kind of things. Yeah, I think that's the essence of being a leader. And Bethan always says, not everybody's meant to be a leader. Some people are meant to be the backup band and follow along or just be part of the conversation, listening, changing their mind. But what struck me in that footage, first, Bethan had the prescience of recording those town hall meetings. That's why we have them. And they're precious footage. And it was very tense. You could feel it. You could feel the atmosphere changing throughout the meeting. It starts out with a lot of silence and you could hear a fly. But by the end, everyone is laughing and ready to take action. So that's, and that's Bethan's energy. Secret sauce. Being comedic is very helpful. Being comedic is very helpful when you're talking about tense issues. That's very good. That's a very good point, Frederick. I circled the word humor in my notes when I was watching the film, and it, it definitely stood out to me that you use humor. It's an important tool. It seems to come naturally to you, which doesn't hurt. And you also can be very disarming, calling people darling and breaking down some of their personal space issues and just personalizing it so that it doesn't feel to that person like a personal attack. It's more of an opportunity for them to join in the conversation. Well, that's very true. It's a good way of putting it. One of the situations where I feel like maybe you had less control rather than in the mastery you showed in running that meeting or in some of the scenes we see with your son, Kadeem Hardison. It's clearly, you know, it's a relationship that is very close, obviously, but I'm just wondering for Frederick, it can be a touchy thing to focus on your co-director's relationship with her son in the film that she has co-directing credit on. How did you feel your way through the interviews with Beth Ann's son, Kadeem. And then how did you approach Beth Ann about this? 
I didn't approach Bethann about it. Bethann approached me about it. It's through those conversations that we're having regularly that Bethann started sharing things. And then I asked more questions I'm curious about. I hadn't met Kadeem actually yet when Bethann told me that he had dropped out and he wasn't being communicated. So I just let Bethann guide me and, and I was curious about it. And then Kadeem's interview was major. He was gracious. It was almost as long as Bethan's interview. We just sat for hours talking. I think he had a lot of things to say about his growing up and about Bethan and, and their relationship. And when he first saw the film, I made sure that I talked to him that same day to get his reaction. I was very anxious. There was only one besides Bethan, of course. There was only no, one. But when, when, even when you showed it, when we were coming from Sundance, you got on the phone with him then too. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was nervous about how he was going to receive it because it's those are intimate relationships he's talking about. But he was thrilled with the film. Yeah, was he was. He's so excited. He's coming to New York now and he'll be here for some other event he had to do, but he's going to be here and see it. He can't wait. He's so excited. And what was it like for you, Bethan, to have Kadeem in the film, but also in real time be working on your relationship with him? No, I wasn't working on any relationship. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, just unfolding. No, he drops out and that's all you can do. You just have to wait for him to drop back in. No, I wasn't working in a relationship. It wasn't like we're a dysfunctional family. He just does that. And he explained it nicely with French and Nancy. Another thing great, everybody felt very comfortable talking about anything about me with Frederick and because Frederick is also the audience. He's sitting there just, just as excited to know the information. So for me, when it came down to Kadeem, it was all right because I had spoken to Frederick. During this time of our collaboration, I would share anything that came up with Frederick. And he became like my father confessor. I would tell him things. It was good because in that sense, by the time he sat and talked with Kadeem, he didn't have to push or pull or tug Kadeem. Any question he asked, Kadeem just answers. And it was very good for everyone. Everyone's very taken with that because they think, oh, you allowed this to happen. It's not like I really allowed. I didn't know about it until I saw the footage. And that, that was pretty much the film. We just had to keep cutting away to get it down to less than two hours. So it was very interesting for me to see what he said. I loved what he had said. I loved that he took it on. The, the buck starts with him. I like that he expressed that he thinks I have more ambition than anybody in the world. And I'm good on that. I'm glad he thinks so. I don't think I'm ambitious at all. But when people see the work that you do and you see all the things you accomplished, they feel that you are. For me, I think it's just... And responsibility is just things you have to do. Somebody's got to do it. So I clean the house. Somebody's got to do it. And you do it. It's not born out of ambition. Ambition is, is like a goal. That's what I think ambition is. So I like to stay in my lane, stay lazy and happy. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good model for living right there. So one last question for each of you, and I'm going to turn the tables a bit on you. So to Frederick first. Through the process of making this film, can you tell us one thing you learned about filmmaking from Beth Ann? I would say I learned to stick to my guns from Beth Ann. She always does raise her voice when she doesn't like something, even up to two weeks ago. She always does. And sometimes I tend to be quiet and be like, okay, well, they know what they're doing. You know, we're just <laughs> going to go along with it. And Beth Ann is not like that. All right, Beth Ann, I think you probably know what's coming. 
Can you tell us one thing you learned about fashion from Frederick through the process of thing. making the film? <laughs> not, not a thing. <laughs> that was cute. Not a thing. <laughs> what I learned about, if I had to learn anything about fashion, it doesn't take a fashion person to tell a great story about anyone in fashion. It takes a person who's an engineer, <laughs> who studied engineering. I always believe in the people who are engineers and then go do something else. As soon as someone tells me, oh, I study engineering, I say, oh, that, that, there goes a clever one. I think that the good news is that he is not interested in fashion. That's great because then that makes a great shooter. That makes someone who's willing to capture everything. They don't have any inside lay that they want to show you or want to control. They're just documenting. And then when it comes out, if he has a great team of editors that he likes to work with, then they'll work it out and make sense of it. And I think that's a brilliant way to do. And he will have these fashion people come at him because he has a reputation in that neighborhood. But the truth of it is that's not what he is. And I always tell people, he's the reason why he's so nice. Everyone says, oh, he's so nice. He's, he makes you feel so comfortable because that's who he is. So it makes it much easier for people to just like let go and tell the story. It's not intimidating. You, you stick around with a bunch of fashion devos, you might <laughs> have the same reaction. The Devos today are very soft and gentle. They're younger. They're cool. And the ones in the past were worth having, honestly. To Frederick's credit, he is wearing a very nice off-white shirt today for our yes. listeners at home. <laughs> he does have a, such a style. Yes, he does. <laughs> and obviously you do too, Beth Ann. And so much more than style. You have incredible substance and you have made a major difference, not only in the world of fashion, but the world at large. And it's just been a delight to talk to you both today. Congratulations on the film and best of luck with the book, Beth Ann. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for putting that in my bead into my bonnet. Thank you so much. And I appreciate it. I'm so happy you liked the film. It means a lot to us. Thank you very much. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Frederick, how about you? I have two, but okay, I'll start with the one that actually relates to Invisible Beauty. Right before I asked Bethan to co-direct, I had seen this film called Un Film Dramatique by Eric Baudelaire. And it was a revelation because it, it was a documentary that was made in collaboration with high school students. In France, they have this program where, you know, when you build the new building, 1% of the budget needs to go to an art piece. And so they asked this filmmaker to do this film as the art piece. And he decided to give the cameras to the high school students and have them guide the story of the film. It really changed the way that I looked at my own work and made me think about collaboration and made me think about how to tell a story differently. And so I remember actually sending the link to Beth Ann right after we met and I asked her to co-direct. And Beth Ann, do you have a hidden gem? I don't have anything that's hidden because I don't hide things. <laughs> How about an unhidden gem? Just because something gets a notice from the Academy doesn't mean that it's getting noticed from the public as much. And I thought the Fire of Love was something that I thought really should be seen by people. I, I just thought it was so brilliant. And some people don't think so. Maybe they don't think it's that. I thought it was brilliant. Um, I think some things can play on and on and on because of the character and the subject. And I think Amy Winehouse's documentary is that, something like that. Even though it was popular because she was a pop star at that time, she, I wouldn't call her a pop star. I wouldn't do that to her. But she was someone who basically was known. 
But just the fact that her story being something that happens to many people, they can't imagine someone with that kind of addiction can actually leave us so early. All right, Beth Ann said too, so maybe I, I have another one. <laughs> There's a film called The Secret Life of Plants from 73. And that's a documentary about plants and the way they communicate uh, and the science. It was very controversial at the time. It had a Stevie Wonder soundtrack. Actually, he appears at the film at the end and sings the theme song. It's wonderful. It needs to be rediscovered. Mm -hmm.